The sheer power of music is something that escapes comprehension, appealing to something within us that exceeds the semantics of language. Today I want to focus on music in terms of its participation within the dialectical dynamism of a legal order of society. This is Annabelle Limbury, and you're listening to Do You Hear the People Sing? Part 1. The Paradox. Music in the State, a weapon of mass distraction. Order is a constituent element of any functioning society, regulating values and behaviours. But this order to which I refer is seldom something we perceive with our senses. Its recognition actually requires a certain amount of reflection, and it seems to me that music has both the calibre to endorse a legal order, while simultaneously carrying the potential to facilitate this reflection that subsequently fuels the fire that seeks to destroy it. So, in other words, music can act as this propaganda vehicle, a sort of weapon of mass distraction deployed by the sovereign to reinforce its own authority, whilst meanwhile it is an instrument of protest seeking to uproot that invisible order of society. Just look for yourself, from hip-hop to Hitler, Gaddafi to Grimes, Stalin to struggle song, music is the force that holds both the key to the survival of a dictatorial regime, as well as the very arsenal deployed by those oppressed to bring about its downfall. And it's this expressive individualism inherent in music that dictatorial entities live in fear of. We can certainly observe this pattern of good mental engagement with every element of culture, even down to the aesthetic encounters of its people. In fact, as early as 380 BC, Plato noted Socrates' warning of the power of music, acknowledging how any kind of musical innovation was in full danger to the whole state, speculating that when modes of music change, the fundamental laws of legal order will change with them. Music was historically used by the European establishment to peddle this message that societal order was something ordained by God himself, and that any attempt to resist it would not only be futile, but would be blasphemous. Now, its ability to approve these approved causes has to be intrinsically linked to its power to fuel disorderly behaviour that challenges the authority of state. So essentially what I'm getting at is if its power can be harnessed to articulate government-endorsed sentiments, the colliery of this would be the unwelcome messages of transgressive identities of rebellion. Part 2. The Tunes of Tyrants. The Secret Sounds of Resistance. Now, one of the most chilling evocations of this paradoxical function of music can be observed in the tunes of totalitarian states. Look at Stalin's Soviet Russia as an example, a period categorised by the homogenisation of Soviet culture, demanding all mediums of art convey proletariat values. Stalin would intervene personally to ensure the music of his country was composed with this primary purpose of deepening support for the violent ideologies of his regime. These proletariat values, then, what were they? Now they demanded artists refrain from succumbing to the so-called clutches of the decadent Western European bourgeois individualism. Stalin himself described artists as the engineers of the soul, mandating that they abandon all Western progressivism and conform to this socialist realism. A theory of art supposedly recording a truthful representation of reality in its revolutionary development, characterised by the glorified depiction of communism and with this prevailing sense of optimism. Hmm, perhaps try socialist surrealism here. Notable composers fell victim to this repressive environment, many of whom were actually forced into exile. The ones who remained, such as Dmitry Sostakovich, lived in fear of the consequences of any perceived lack of subservience to this conscription. 1931, 21-year-old Shostakovich wrote his second operatic work, Lady Rigobert. The racy plot was set to avant-garde music, was an absolute hit in Moscow. 
Then came 1936. Comrades Stalin and his entourage attend a performance at the Bolshoi Theatre, two years following its premiere. At the start of the third act, Stalin storms out feeling sick at heart. It seems he did not respond well to the main theme that justified murder of a tyrant. Hmm, I wonder why. He loathed it, and he loathed its success even more. And thanks to the omniscient dictator, within a day, Shostakovich went from cultural hero to an absolute zero. Now, it's no coincidence that the following day, the Pravda, which was the official propaganda organ of the CPSU, released an unsigned coverage castigating this opera as formalist and vulgar in course, accusing it of tickling the perverted tastes of the bourgeois, concluding with a somewhat chilling undertone. This clever game of ingenuity could only end very badly. In perhaps one of the most important musical documents of 20th century history, Shostakovich was cast into the abyss of disgrace as some sort of pernicious purvier of cultural depravity. Conductor Valeria Gergiev speculates that Stalin felt threatened by the success and fame of this young composer. Shostakovich was far too admired by people and too popular and too influential to have such a controversial voice. Now, within the Soviet Union, there was this foreboding category of people that disappeared. Terrifying numbers fell into it. Shostakovich himself thankfully managed to escape its wrath. His fourth symphony of 1936, however, was not so lucky. This was a choice between self-censure or state censure, and this was seemingly factored into his decision to withdraw his fourth symphony two days before it premiered. In many regards, the people of Soviet Russia viewed Shostakovich as a sort of chronicler of their era, reflecting the cruelty and the tragedy and this nightmare of repression that defined their reality. But with not only his career, but his life on a knife's edge, his fourth symphony was shelved for the next 25 years. And now we get to see the strange paradox in its full bloom. In 1937, he wrote his fifth symphony, which was understood to be an attempt to be rehabilitated by the state. But the fact he entitled this as his fifth symphony already alludes to the sense of sarcasm. He was evidently not intending on consigning his symphony number four to the ranks of musical non-existence forever. What's most incredible, though, is the quotations you get within the piece. Excerpts from the well-known opera Carmen, referring to the first verse of Habanera with its poignant lyrics that read, Love is a rebellious bird that nobody can tame, and you can call him quite in vain if it suits him not to come. And then we get this oscillating figure in the violence, quoting one of his own works, Rebirth. An artist barbarian with his lazy brush blackens the painting of a genius, and senselessly he covers it with his own illegitimate drawing. Now this is actual genius. Assumedly, he was paralleling Stalin's obliteration of his own fourth symphony, and yet, if someone was to actually detect this quotation, it could have easily been defended as him losing his previous bourgeois delusions and becoming a happy participant in this utopia. And indeed, this is exactly how it was received. An article accompanying its premiere in 1937 called it a Soviet artist's reply to just criticism. Even in this, you can perhaps detect a sense of mockery. But, according to official opinion, he had seen the light and become a true Soviet man. The premiere received a standing ovation lasting over half an hour, and those who were applauding it had seemingly understood it, that this rejoicing was forced and created a threat. So was this a change of tune for or against the dictator? Was this triumphant coda of hope and optimism actually depicting a victory against Stalin? Or was this an extreme form of irony, ingeniously straddling both sides 
of a dangerous abyss. He resorted to composing a piece that would seemingly enable his fellow countrymen to discern a message quite different from the one received by the authorities. Was he then some sort of musical chameleon? Had he managed to walk this lethal tightrope, passing the tyrant's test and yet still being able to convey to his audience something in defiance to it? Music by its very nature is ambiguous, and Shostakovich, in recognising the only way he would not be silenced by force was to compose within the regulations imposed by socialist realism, was to exploit this ambiguity presenting music as a sort of ideal weapon of resistance within a regime where every expression was scrutinised for a political subtext. So then, this would imply that one of the greatest strengths of music, and arguably the greatest threat it poses, is that its power needn't demand this sort of deep reflection that political thought often does. In other words, we needn't intricately dissect a musical piece in order to grasp its true meaning as it is something we experience with a sensual force that resonates with individual listeners. And Shostakovich himself noted that no description, no matter how brilliant, can give a true idea to the power of music. Words cannot rival it in appeal and impact. So here music had attained a tone that appeared to conform, but all the while it was commenting and undercutting itself with versions of irony and ridicule and mockery that would only resonate with those emotionally attuned to it. So he was seemingly shaping his composition style to fit this image mandated by the tyrant, but merely as a sort of acquiescent mask, developing a public voice that hid a more esoteric meaning. And it is genius as expressing optimism, pessimism, and realism, all within one work without any sense of contradiction. It's a sort of masterpiece of grey areas that even someone as powerful as Stalin was unable to control. Part 3. Music and Revolution, an instrument of social change. A pertinent question then was, how can music be so influential? that it can pose such a threat to the order of society that Stalin felt this necessity to personally intervene. Now music is such a meaning-laden and expressive object of culture, so abstract and yet so concrete, that where artists are given this free artistic license to express any kind of political dissent, this message is then susceptible to transcend that individual and resonate with a whole group of people and form a sense of community against a regime. And history will certainly testify that you cannot implement a set of ideas or bring about any kind of significant revolutionary changes within a society purely with force, particularly in the context of an entrenched political order enforced by a dominating force. We cannot mistake movement for progress. No, if there is to be some kind of fundamental change to an established legal order, then first must be a shift within the political consciousness of the people living within it. And as was discussed earlier, to perceive an order that you are immersed in and are living within it will require reflection and that requires education and the changing perspectives the opening of minds to alternative modes of thinking that have never been endorsed and it seems that music can facilitate this reflection and shed light on a perceived injustice that will form a part of the political furniture this established norm that people have gone without ever really noticing or questioning never mind actually challenging 
You have to change the way in which people view the subjectivity and this is where musical aesthetics comes in. Music carries with it this mass of weapons under its arsenal. First off, the awakening of the political consciousness. And I mean, let's face it, popularity will not necessarily lend itself to the kind of complex analysis that the reality will often demand. And so it's through music that this political commentary can be lifted from its inaccessible, sometimes kind of boring realm and be transformed into something engaging and memorable and accessible to more people. And music does have this bizarre ability to haunt its consumers, providing this presentational depiction of an inchoate experience of suffering that, upon grasping, can initiate a change of perception. Philosopher Frederick Skiller suggested that music has the capacity to immediately act upon our feelings, containing a truth that cannot be corrupted or removed, a sort of redeeming power shattering mindless obedience. So in breaking this monopoly of established reality and revealing a hidden truth, we become a little more enlightened, much like a science experiment allowing us to gather a more accurate depiction of our surroundings that existed all along despite our ignorance of them. Part 4. Music and Social Movements. The beat that beat apartheid. Okay, so I want to put this into a concrete example. If we were to look at the utilisation of music during the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa. Okay, so this was a country marked by one of the most brutal systems of oppression. And just as we spoke of this political furniture, this invisible order, apartheid was a new term, but a very old entrenched idea. Essentially represented the codification of common discriminatory practices that existed since the European arrival on the Cape 300 years preceding. Apartheid was absolutely diabolic in detail, inescapable in reach and overwhelming. Power. So this idea of music as a medium of education and political awakening can be perfectly summarised through the anti-apartheid movement and in this interview conducted in the documentary film A Revolution in Four Pot Harmony, Sabito Natuli, who was an activist, explains how A song is something that would communicate to those people who otherwise would not understand. You could give them a long political speech, they still would not understand. But I tell you, when you finish that song, people be like, damn, I know where you're coming from. Death to apartheid. Okay, so this observation just goes to show the power of song, particularly in a context where there is a substantial lack of literary skills and economic means. The South African Broadcasting Corporation, under apartheid, operated a system of censorship much like Soviet Russia. They even used to scratch records to ensure that they wouldn't be aired, clearly recognise how the sound and the experience is intrinsically linked to the thought and action that gives the voice to resistance. Many artists were determined to voice their views musically, and so you would get these encoded hidden meanings. For instance, if you look at the music of Johnny Clegg and Sifo Makuno of Jaluka, the rhythm of resistance explains how one of their songs describes two fighting bulls. One large and strong, the other small with tiny horns. But as they fight, it becomes apparent the little bull is going to win. From this comes this Zulu proverb, which says the bull does not stab with his horns, but with his fighting knowledge. It is the spirit that counts, not superior weaponing. And clearly this is a tale symbolising the victory of the underdog over his oppressor. So once again, significance would resonate with those in the know, forming this sense of an us and a them. These songs were composed in the moment by protesters so that they would never actually be committed to tape. And so they, they actually became the communal property of the protesters and even planning future protests right under the nose of the oppressors. So this reflects how music does not actually stop at education. There's this idiom that seems really relevant, uh, written by German playwright Berthold Brecht, that goes, Art is not only the mirror held up to reality, but the hammer with which to shape it. 
and indeed the history of this brutal struggle can be told in song, this kind of alternative documentation through this lens of music. And indeed every generation of the movement had its own songs, with their own epoch, with their own motivation. Activist Manala Manzini pointed out that these songs express not just the mood, but the political momentum of the time. And so the more radical the situation was becoming, the more militant many of the songs became. The social movement gave a political focus to music, but simultaneously it seems that music gave a certain direction to the political movement, just as a community will shape the music, in turn it will be shaped by it. Nelson Mandela captures this phenomenon absolutely perfectly in this interview taken from The Hidden Years. The curious beauty of African music is that it uplifts as it tells a sad tale, often about our aspirations and can ignite the political resolve of those who otherwise might be indifferent to politics. Politics strengthens music, but music has a potency that defies politics. So music was one of the most crucial elements in forming solidarity against injustice. Look at concerts, football games, church, I mean you can see the capacity of music to coordinate an action and forge a group identity and it has this ability to inflect emotions of a mass group of people and in that way it creates this communal connection, type of synchronisation of feelings and actions, creating this sense of unity and belonging in face of a regime that's entire object is segregation. So it's more than any kind of performance, struggle songs with this alchemy, corroding this old and just social order and liberating the potential for a new one. Which actually seems really ironic. This social movement was using music in, in kind of the same way that a state would, as this tool of propaganda. But more than this, it was, it was more than just a music community building, because within the music there was a lot of recognition of personal truth. Validate this sense of self in the context where it had been consistently denied, and a sense of self is crucial to achieving ends. It's strange because often this perceived sense of enjoyment and release and joy through this escape of music can be perceived as a impediment to progressive social change. But I would actually say that this individual liberation can only constitute this radical assault against the regime itself. I mean, to achieve this kind of happiness and community in a context where humanity was simply not being recognised is to fundamentally contest the situation. Music is a totally empowering act and it's this kind of site of self-construction of the individual, exerting control, owning the music. And in this environment where people's daily reality was characterised by anger or terror, this temporary state outside of that was so significant. But to sing and dance in the face of this ugliness and this ongoing grief is actually to rid oneself of it. And that in itself is an act of defiance. So Plato's comment concerning how modes of music change, the fundamental laws of state change with them, does hold true for South Africa. Music gave the social movement direction and focus, just as politics gave focus to the music, charging it with this special responsibility. Yeah, and you can see from Glastonbury Festival to Tahir Square, Shostakovich to Shrillex, Beethoven to Billy Bragg, anti-apartheid struggle, rave music, Kendrick Lamar, that is and that always has been the strange interplay between music, the state and political protest and it takes many dimensions. So then we get the gist that since the dawn of time, music has reflected and helped to shape the conditions of the existence of humanity. Colourful harmony and meaningful melodies have provided this essential catalyst and a sort of soundtrack to movements of change. Musicians have always responded to struggles throughout all convulsions of history and some have had to pay a very high price for challenging the status quo, whilst others have richly been awarded for attaining it 
but I just want to ask where is music headed? I mean, obviously this is this is going to be related to where our politics is headed at the minute. I would say it seems worldwide discourse of nationalism and right-wing politics with Brexit disintegration has gained substantial momentum in recent years. So, so is protest music just being left behind? There is this disillusionment and um, apathy in politics in recent years. I don't speculate as to whether we're actually moving into a period where music is taking a less political role and is actually starting to become more of a means of escape from politics. Personally, I, I think it's so important that we're aware of the various ways in which governments and powerful corporations will use music to push their agenda. And we have to reject this idea that it's this relationship between power and music that's inevitable. Music is going to come from somewhere. So it's had from and before our communities, or it's going to come from and before the corporations and governments. The choice is essentially ours, and what path we head down is entirely determined by our collective action. Understanding culture and reclaiming music back from this popular culture industry is absolutely crucial if we want to invoke the betterment of our society.